open with a word of prayer. I do have what is a very simple lesson, but I also have the ability to fix that as we go along. So let's pray that the Lord will, will help us. Father, thank you for bringing us back together in this room to consider those things which we confess and believe because we find them in your word. Lord, help us to find our beliefs rooted in the Scriptures and from there to, to derive our confidence and our conviction. Please teach us and help us to love the simplicity of Your, your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing the subject of baptism. And I, I think it goes without statement that this is, would be one of the chapters in which our confession of faith puts us at variance with other groups that came out of the Reformation period and post-Reformation uh, Puritan era. And here specifically we come to a paragraph that really draws the contrast between us and many other groups. Answering the question, who should be baptized? That's the question. So when you go home, hopefully you'll know the answer. Now I want to read the paragraph and then we'll open it up. This is paragraph 2 of chapter 29. Those who do actually profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, are the only proper subjects of this ordinance, that being baptism. So I've entitled this paragraph, The Proper Subjects of Baptism. And the first thing we see is the act required by those who would be the proper subjects of baptism. The act required. Notice the phrase, those who do actually profess. Those who do actually profess. So what is the act required for somebody if they're going to be the proper subject of baptism? The answer is a profession. Now we'll get to the substance of the profession in the, the second main point. But for now, we're, what we're seeing is that a profession of some sort is required if somebody is going to be the subject of biblical baptism. A profession is defined as an open declaration, uh, a public avowal or acknowledgement of one's sentiments or beliefs. In other words, it's saying, this is what I believe. That's a profession. Now we call this our confession because that means to say with or to say the same thing as other people. We confess along with others. To profess means to, to speak before others, to declare publicly what you believe. It's a, to make a public profession declaring what you believe to be true. Now, before we go any further, when we ask the question, who should be baptized, there might be a lot of people, especially if, you, if you're not familiar with the, the variations in denominations within Christianity, somebody on the outside might think, why does this matter? Why, why is this really that big of a deal? Why is it that the answer to this question is the dividing line for a lot of people as to which building and group of people they're going to worship with on a Lord's Day? The answer to this question, why is it that big of a deal? Well, when we see that a profession is required, that takes us back to chapter 26 of our confession, paragraph 2, which said, All persons throughout the world professing the faith of the gospel 
and obedience unto God by Christ according unto it, not destroying their own profession by any errors, averting the foundation, or unholiness of conversation, are and may be called visible saints. And of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. So we learn there that churches are constituted of people who make this public profession of faith in the gospel, a belief in the gospel. We, we, would, we could discern from that paragraph... Membership in a church should only consist of people who profess to be Christians. This would go completely contrary to the idea of a state church or a, a, a parish church or church membership by bloodlines. Well, you're a member of the church because of who your parents or grandparents are. Church membership is, is laid out really along this same line. What do they profess? Now we're seeing that it's those people who make that profession who are the proper subjects of baptism, which is to say, a true church is to be constituted only of people who publicly profess the faith of the gospel and are baptized. And this is why we often say that baptism is the doorway into church membership. Baptism and church membership go hand in hand. There really shouldn't be a distinction between those two groups, the people who are baptized and the people who are members of a church. There shouldn't be in the world running around a lot of baptized people who are not members of churches. There also shouldn't be a lot of people who are members of churches who are not baptized. That, that, that If you were drawing a Venn diagram, those circles should completely overlap. Now, is it possible for this to happen? Sure, it's possible. People make false professions or, or there are churches who, who will baptize people, but they don't, they don't take that into church membership. They draw a line. It does happen, but I think that is contrary to the normal way of operating according to Scripture. There is a connection then between baptism and church membership. When, we, when we're asking the question, who should be baptized, we're also asking who should be a member of the church. Those questions go together. Now, a profession like the one that's being described here, without getting into the substance of it, think, think about this. It implies several things. You obviously have the person who's making the profession, but you have to have somebody else who's hearing or receiving the profession, somebody who's listening to their profession, you have to have some way to verify whether or not that profession is actually true to the requirements. That'll be number two. In other words, you could profess something that is just way out in left field. So somebody's got to decide, is what they're professing what we want to hear? And then you have to be able to discern, is what they're professing actually true to their lives? Does it, does it bear true for them? And this is where we really begin to see the wisdom of Christ in establishing the local church and giving authority to the local church and giving His Spirit to the people inside the local church, which church is to administer the ordinance of baptism through the hands of the elders of the church. Through the church, the one making the profession has a body of believers and elders who can hear and receive their profession of faith. That church can work to discern, is this profession consistent with Christian beliefs and practices? And then over time, that same group can be, try to discern, is this person's profession 
true to their life. That's where you have to watch and discern. Well, they say this, but they do this. Or they also say this. Are there contradictions? Or do these things match up? Somebody has to make that decision. There has to be some sort of uh, discerning of the profession. All of this is implied in the concept of a profession. As chapter 26 said, those who constitute the church should not only profess the faith, but also not destroy their own profession by any errors averting the foundation or unholiness of conversation. That is, their doctrine and their life has to match their profession. It's the same with those who would be baptized. You don't just baptize somebody because they say something. You have to be able to discern, is this a legitimate, or the term that is historically used is, is this a credible profession? Can, is there credit behind what is being said? Now, if we tie this public profession of faith to baptism, then we can say that the verbal profession of one's faith becomes public and physical in the act of baptism. So last week we, we talked about how baptism, according to the first paragraph, is primarily a, a, a symbol or a sign to the one being baptized. But this is where we begin to see what is really often discussed more often is that baptism is also a public profession, a public physical profession of what has already been verbally professed elsewhere. So when, when a person submits to baptism, what they're doing is they're making their profession of faith public before the church. Now, a lot of churches will have the person get in front of the church or record a video and give a, a public verbal profession then they give the, the, uh, the physical profession through the waters of baptism. But submitting to baptism is just that. It's a person saying, I'm submitting to this ordinance to profess what I believe. In admitting a person to baptism, the church gives their confirmation to that profession. They're saying, as far as we can tell, the profession is true to what we would expect a Christian profession to be. And as far as we can tell, their life and doctrine is consistent with that profession. Can we be wrong? Sure. It happens a lot. But that's what the church is doing. They're adding a confirmation to that profession. In baptism, the profession is acknowledged in a way that also feeds directly into the constitution of a local church. Again, baptism is what we call the doorway into the local church. Now, does that mean... You, you have to be baptized every time you come into a new church. No, the idea is you're, you're, you're converted, you're baptized into the membership of a local church and throughout your life if you move or transfer membership, that, that carries on. It's sort of a, there should be a sequence of, of, a, uh, of that profession moving from church to church. That's why when people come here to join, we say, have you been baptized prior to coming here? They say, yes, I was baptized. I was a member of such and such a church. Okay, there's no need for us to baptize you again. We receive your profession. We receive your baptism. And we welcome you to membership. It's important here to remember also that baptism is an ordinance of the church. And this is where I'd just like to be, help us to be clear on our language. Whereas for a lot of people, the idea of being baptized is um, their own self-initiative. I just want to come get baptized. Or, or the church or somebody, an officiant might say, if you want to come get baptized, when really, because it's an ordinance of the church, we should say it is the church who administers baptism. And 
only to those who are fit to be baptized into the membership of the church. It's not for anybody who signs up. If they, if they get on the list by a certain date, you get to be baptized. No, the church administers the ordinance. You don't just come and take it. And those fitted to be admitted to membership through baptism, at a bare minimum, must make a profession. So what is the act required to be the proper subject of baptism? There must be a profession of faith. Now, second heading is the substance of their profession. The substance. What exactly must be professed? What are we expecting to hear from someone if they are to be admitted to baptism? Again, tied very closely to church membership. The elders do interviews and we're asking questions. We're listening for someone to say, here's what I believe, certain things. What are we expecting? Here, here are some options. I profess to never drink again. Should that person be admitted to baptism? I mean, they said they'd never drink again. I profess to turn my life around. I promise from here on out to go to church and try to be a really good person. Or even, I profess to be a Christian. I'm a Christian. Is that sufficient to bring someone to the waters of baptism? Or someone may say, well, I've asked Jesus to come into my heart. Is that a, is that a credible profession? Are these legitimate? What are we looking for? What do we want to hear? Well, our confession reads it this way. And again, this is one of those statements that's made simple, and I'll, I'll open it up a little further. The confession reads, those who do actually profess repentance toward God, faith in, and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you will remember... No, you won't. Nobody will remember because it's been five years ago. When we first started the Confession of Faith, uh, I, I said, and I learned this from James Renahan, that the Confession is very, it's very helpful to read it side to side or forwards and backwards. There are statements made that when you tie them together with other statements prior to or after, it, it, it helps you understand the broader picture of the confession. So when we break this down, the confession just says, repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if this was the only paragraph we had, we might say, what is repentance? What is faith? What is obedience? We wouldn't know. This is why it's important to have a, a good, hefty, detailed confession of faith. Because when it's left to uh, an individual's interpretation too far, eventually you get to the point where there's really not any unity. You might have ten people who all say they've repented, and they've got ten different definitions of repentant or repentance. So what is repentance? This is the first part of the summary of what Paul preached Reference in Acts 20, 21. He said his ministry was one of testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. Now I could say repentance is a change of mind leading to a change of, of actions or, or something to that effect. But listen to how our confession, if you've got a copy, you can turn to chapter 15. Our, our confession describes repentance this way. Chapter 15, paragraph 3. Saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person 
being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit, to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. So then, according to the, the internal uh, connectedness of our own confession, a person who professes repentance toward God is a person who says or, or is professing that they have been made sensible of the manifold evils of their sin. They've humbled themselves for their sin with godly sorrow. They detest their sin. They even abhor themselves for their sin. Their lives will be marked by praying for pardon and for strength of grace. And they will purpose and endeavor to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. We call that obedience. And all of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean when we say repentance. So if a person says, well, I've repented. Okay, what does that mean? And those of you who've gone through the interviews, you know that oftentimes after you explain the gospel, we'll, we'll ask something like this. Let's say you had a friend who said that they were a Christian, and, but they were living in an adulterous affair, living with someone who was not their, their spouse. What could you say to them? Or what, what is the problem with that? And what we're, we're looking for is, well, that can't be because a Christian is a person who has repented, who's turned from sin. So a person who claims to be a Christian and yet is not sensible of the manifold evils of their sin, are not humbled with godly sorrow, they don't t detest their sin, they're not praying for and endeavoring after obedience and grace. Well, that's not a, they've not actually repented. That's a problem. See, we're looking for repentance. That's a part of becoming a Christian is repentance. So a person who's professed repentance will have these things in the substance of their, their thought. Now, are they going to be able to articulate this word for word according to the confession? Probably not. I can't. I'm reading it. But that's what we're looking for, repentance. The second thing they must profess is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the second part of Acts 20.21. 20, Paul said he testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if we didn't have our confession, there might be a thousand definitions of faith, what it looks like. But our confession in chapter 14, paragraph 2, and it's a long paragraph, just getting to the end part, says that the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ accepting, receiving, and resting upon Him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So, we could say a person who professes faith in Jesus Christ, what they're saying is, I have accepted Christ alone, not the Christ of my imagination, but the Christ that is set forth and offered to us from God in the Scriptures, the, the prophet, priest, and king of His people, that Jesus. I've accepted that one. I receive Him alone, all of His benefits, as, as my substitute for my salvation. I rest upon Him alone and His work for all of my salvation from start to finish. That's justification, sanctification, eternal life. And in light of this and what we saw with repentance with, with regard to self-abhorrence, I would also say that a Christian is one who repudiates all self-righteousness. They profess faith 
in Jesus Christ. Now, why is faith required for baptism? Well, as we saw last week, faith is what joins us to Christ and receives the benefits of His death and resurrection through union. Apart from faith, the one who's baptized is... uh, The baptism itself is preaching a lie. All of the truths that the Bible teaches about baptism are not, they're not legitimate for that person. And so that's why faith is required. So they must profess faith. And then thirdly, they must profess obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian profession is not just concerning things believed, but and it's even it's not only concerning things that they've turned from. Well, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that. I, I quit a lot of things. Here, I'm ready to be baptized. Well, what have you what have you started? What are you going to do? It must be a profession of obedience in following Christ. Now, again, our confession helps us here in chapter 16, paragraph two, speaking of good works. We read good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. So if they profess faith but they have no works, that faith is dead. When they profess to be obedient or to follow Christ, they're not saying, and this is how I keep myself saved. They're saying, this is what I do because I'm a Christian. Continuing, it says, And by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God whose workmanship they are. Obedience to Christ adorns that profession. Obedience takes that profession from mere words and makes it real. It shows that it is a legitimate profession. Apart from obedience, a profession of faith is just words. Matthew 16, 24 says, Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you don't profess to do that, you're not a Christian. You have to follow Christ. And what our confession is asserting here, and this is what we believe, that these people who profess these things are the only proper subjects of the ordinance of baptism. Those who publicly declare that they've been made sensible of the evils of their sin. They've been humbled for their sin with godly sorrow. They detest their sin. They abhor themselves for their sin. Their lives are marked by praying for pardon and strength of grace. They purpose and endeavor to walk before God unto all well-pleasing. They accept Christ as He's offered in the Scriptures. They receive and rest upon Him alone for their salvation. They repudiate all self-righteousness. And having denied themselves and having taken up their cross, they profess to follow Christ in obedience to His commands. That person is the person who should be baptized and that person alone. Now again, can somebody make the profession and maybe even appear to give the fruit of the profession for a time but not truly be a a Christian? Sure. But we have to receive the profession. Because that can be the case, that, that doesn't lead us to say, well, let's just throw the whole profession idea out of the way or out, out the door, and let's just take anybody who wants. No, no, no we don't do that. We, we do the best we can. Now, having unpacked all of this long ways, as we see even in our confession, we understand that it, it can be assumed or implied in far shorter statements. Repentance and faith always go together. 
There's never repentance without faith. There's never faith without repentance. So if the, if the Scripture talks about someone believing, well, that, that assumes they repented as well. Obedience is the inevitable fruit of one who has repented and believed. So if, if the Scripture says someone repented or someone believed, we can assume, based on the testimony of Scripture, that that person is also an obedient follower. The point is, when we turn to the Scriptures to verify these things, we're not looking for the entire systematic confession of faith restated in the pages of Scripture. These things are, are, are put together in our confession the way they are for a reason. But what we're looking for is a general pattern in the Scriptures. And the pattern is this. Faith precedes baptism. That's the pattern. Or we could say the only people who should be baptized are those who are believers or those who make a profession of faith. Now the only two references that our, our, our confession gives us are Mark 16, 16 and Acts 8, 36 to 38. So let's look at those. And I've got more, so we can build a hefty case here. I don't think this is something that's just pieced together. <clears throat> Mark sixteen sixteen says... Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Notice, whoever believes and is baptized. Here, belief precedes baptism. It doesn't say whoever is baptized will be saved. It says whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, if you notice the contrast in this verse, belief is contrasted with being under condemnation. There's two categories. You've got a, a person over here who believes and a person over here who's condemned. They're not the same group. The same thing that Jesus says in John 3. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. You're either believing or you're condemned. Two categories. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So to be in Christ is to be out of this category and into this category. So therefore, we could say, putting Scripture with Scripture, belief here is also assuming union with Christ. Belief is what brings us into that union. Only those in union with Christ should be admitted to the waters of baptism. Then we have Acts chapter 8, verses 36 to 38. Acts 6... Or Acts 8, 36 to 38. <clears throat> if you have an ESV with footnotes, we're going to be reading from a footnote. As they were going along, along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What did Philip seek? He sought a profession of faith. The eunuch made his profession. Then they stopped the chariot. The chariot didn't stop until the profession. 
Now, for those who don't feel comfortable using the long ending of Mark or verse 37, which is a footnote in, in some translations, as a, a foundational proof of doctrine, at the very least, and maybe this is an even greater proof of the doctrine that's being asserted, at the very least, all parties involved, wherever you stand on, on the textual criticism uh, issue, all parties involved would have to admit that somebody somewhere before the Baptists came along believed that this was intended to be the pattern of Christian baptism. People might say, well, that's not in there. Well, where did it come from? Well, somebody wrote that in there in the whatever century. Well, then somebody in that century thought that it might be important for us to know that faith preceded baptism. It was understood that baptism was for those who professed the faith of the gospel. But we don't have to stop there. And I want to I build a big case for this. All throughout the New Testament, baptism is only administered to those who were making a public profession of repentance and faith. Only. I, I was thinking on the way over here of, of groups, uh, uh, denominations that have come along later. They might not find themselves in the ancient stream of, of, of orthodoxy or the Reformed tradition, and they might call themselves non-denominational. And they say, we're going we're gonna to reinvent the wheel. No creed but Christ. We only use the Bible. How many of them baptize people who don't profess faith in Christ? They don't. They're all credo-baptists. Why? Well, it's because all they have to work with is the Scriptures. And the Scriptures unanimously assert faith and repentance precedes baptism. Now, that, we, we might not want to claim them as our, you know, on our team all the time, but that, that, just, that says a lot about what a person will come up with when they only have the Bible. In Matthew 3, 6 and Mark 1, 4, we have references to the baptism of John. Matthew 3, 6, they were baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Mark 1, 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Those baptized by John were acknowledging their willingness to confess their sins, to repent, and to receive forgiveness. One person didn't come along to confess their sins, and John said, well, I'll baptize you, and hey, hey, bring your friend too. Well, they don't really, no, just bring them. They're close to you. No, it, it, these are people who are confessing their sins, repenting, and believing. John chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. We can stop there. I think it goes on to say, although Jesus Himself did not baptize. But we could stop there and say, ask this question. Who did Jesus or His disciples baptize? Answer. They baptized disciples. Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Okay? What is a disciple? A disciple is a pupil, a follower, one who's being made like his teacher. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26 to 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Are we to put these two statements together and to assume that Jesus was baptizing people 
who came to him and said, I'm not willing to do any of that, but I would like for you to baptize me anyway. Of course not. He's baptizing those who were disciples. A disciple is one who bears his own cross and follows Christ. It's these who Christ baptized, disciples. Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What does receive mean here? I think we could summarize it by saying the reception here means to hear and believe with faith. This is not just the sermon went into the, the holes in the side of their heads. It's a reception, a faith reception of the Word, a receiving of the implanted Word, we could say. Reception of the Word preceded baptism, and only those who received the Word in this way were baptized. It would, it would be absurd to say, well, those who received the Word were baptized and everybody else who was just there. They just baptized them too. No, it was those who received the Word. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Again, catechize the text. When were they baptized? Answer, when they believed the gospel. Not before they believed, after they believed. They were baptized. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. If you're not following along, I want to show you this little uh, argument. And I didn't discover this on my own. But it's interesting. In Acts 10, 47 to 48, so Peter has ministered to Cornelius... in in 1024, together with his relatives and close friends. So the, arg- the argument for household baptisms would also have to include close friends of Cornelius as well, if you want to apply that here. But, but a group has gathered. The, the gospel has been preached. The Holy Spirit is poured out. They extol God in foreign languages, unknown to the Jews who were present. That might be important for our study on the spiritual gifts, the Gentiles spoke in tongues while the the Jews just sort of standing around watching, which is significant. But Peter says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now in this passage, it, it simply says, They received the Holy Spirit. That might not carry as much weight as we'd like for it to. But Peter recounts this story in two other places. In chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, he says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Peter ties these things together. The the Spirit falling on them reminded him, oh yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, John baptizes, or John said, I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the picture. Peter ties these things together. When the Spirit fell, that was the baptism that Christ promised. In that moment, they had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we could say, by Christ Himself or by the Spirit of Christ. And then in Acts chapter 15, 
verses 8 and 9, he tells it again at the Jerusalem council. Peter says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that would be the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us, and He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So not only did they receive the Holy Spirit, they were cleansed by that same Holy Spirit by what instrument? Faith. Their faith. Now, if we go back to Acts 10, it didn't say they believed and the Spirit fell. You read on and he, he elaborates upon it. So if we go back to Acts chapter 10, we could ask, who did Peter decide should be baptized with water? It would be those who heard the gospel, who responded to the gospel with faith, and then received the Holy Spirit, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ. And therefore, water baptism makes sense in their case. It's the symbol of the reality itself. In other words, believers were baptized. They were baptized as a sign of what had happened to them. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Who was baptized? Those who heard the word and believed. You could go also to 1 Corinthians 1, 13-16, where Paul's addressing the divisions in that church. He says, Was, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So we, we could ask, who is the you in these verses? If we answer the question, who is the you, that will also answer the question from Acts 18, who of the Corinthians were baptized? The answer from 1 Corinthians 1-2 would be the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. So who is admitted to be baptized? Those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. That is Christians or believers. Those who profess faith in Christ. Now these are all narrative texts. There, there, are, there are many other narrative texts explaining and describing who gets baptized. They're all narrative texts. They describe the history of the matter. Seeing this in the book of Acts and elsewhere, we could then ask, why did they do it this way? Where did the apostles get this idea? Where did they come up with this thing where they would just they would go and they would preach and then whenever there was a, a, a faith reception of the gospel, those individuals, they would then baptize. Where did they come up with that? Who put that idea in their head? Well, I can answer, it was not the covenant theology of the Old Testament. It was not the, the, the administration of the covenant of grace under Abraham. They didn't get that from him. Where did they get it? They got it from the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
If you want to open up and unpack and see what that text means, read the book of Acts. How did they interpret it? What did they do? They preached. When people believed, the believers were baptized. Who is to be baptized? Those who are disciples of Jesus Christ from among the nations. Two conclusions. Those who make a credible profession of the true faith are the only people who should be baptized. Number two, anyone who cannot, will not, or does not make a credible profession of faith should not be baptized. That's, that's pretty simple, right? Let's pray.